Straight Talk from Israel. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. And now, here is Walter Bingham. Hello and welcome to the first program of the new year. Three days ago, the world greeted 2022. Unfortunately, the raging COVID pandemic saw to it that the celebrations were not as boisterous as usual. It did, of course, not affect your New Year's resolutions. And I hope that you considered to criticize less harshly the events that don't correspond to your own views and instead search for the positive. In fact, the traditional Jewish rubric is Tikkun Olam, repair the world. In other words, seek the good in every action. In the Hebrew calendar, it's the 2nd of Shvat 5782. I am Walter Bingham. In today's program, we look at the discussion about the Kashrat conundrum, keeping kosher, that is currently high on the agenda in the Torah-observant communities here in Israel, and is also affecting the Jewish diaspora. We hear about the subject of dealing with fading memory in the older generation, and there is also an interview with a fascinating young female lone soldier who left her home in Hong Kong to serve in a combat unit of the IDF, Israel's Defence Forces. The Archbishop of South Africa, Desmond Tutu, died this week, and the programme balances the glowing obituaries as defender of morality against his attitude to Jews and Israel. There will be an assessment of the convicted criminal who was able to regain his position in government and once again could not keep his finger out of the till. Hear about another prominent convicted criminal who is coming out of the shadows to self-publicize himself. But first, this. The relationship of the Jewish diaspora with Israel is a perennial subject that rouses passions on both sides. Israel is a Jewish state and must always be open to all Jews. The law of return, which itself is a matter of controversial debate, ensures that even one paternal grandfather entitles to Aliyah, permanent settlement and Israeli citizenship. We have to go into a break now, but stay tuned to hear the point of this subject. The return of the Jewish people to the land of Israel was prophesied in the Bible thousands of years ago and is coming true today. Shalom. Join me, Josh Wander, on Israel Unplugged. Listen in as we delve into the spiritual and physical aspects of the Jewish return to Zion. We'll discuss the biblically mandated, historic, and of course practical understandings of this incredible transition from exile to redemption. That's Israel Unplugged, every Monday on IsraelNewsTalkRadio.com. And now, here is Walter Bingham. Welcome back. We are talking about the controversial subject of Israel closing its borders because of COVID. The COVID pandemic, with its variants and unknown consequences, has caused the countries of the world to take precautions to ensure that no carriers enter their borders in order to contain any outbreaks to a minimum. From time to time, countries change their regulations dependent on the severity of their morbidity. In Israel right now, the Omicron variant, which is known to be highly infectious, has taken hold, and to prevent further sources of the disease from entering the country, Israel has closed its borders to general tourism. As a result, the Jewish diaspora has gone berserk. South African Chief Rabbi Warren Goldstein said closing the borders was a moral disgrace, which amounts to Israel saying, you are not a part of us, we are not a part of you. Even the CEO of the Conference of Major American Jewish Organizations, William Daroff, 
is reported to have reacted to the closure with Our contract has been suspended. Both these gentlemen are leaders of their respective communities and certainly men of the world. It is therefore surprising that they do not seem to realize that the COVID pandemic does not differentiate between religious or any other affiliation. To demand that diaspora Jews should be made an exception for entry into Israel while closure is in effect is an irresponsible request. We fully understand their disappointment and feel their frustration, but it demonstrates a contradiction to their professed care for their families who live here and, of course, the Jewish state. Yet, to my great surprise and disappointment, Israel's president, Isaac Herzog, whom I greatly respect and admire, expressed support to allow diaspora Jews to enter Israel during closure. That would not bode well with the majority of would-be tourists who are Christian supporters of Israel. And Prime Minister Bennett does not plan to open the borders to diaspora Jews. Who keeps kosher better? My task as journalist is to bring to the fore matters that Israelis care about. So today I'm discussing the vexed conundrum of kashrut standards, that's keeping kosher, as well as its intra-religious rivalry. In Judaism, it's not only morals that we value, but ethics also play an important part in our lives. Our Torah, the five books of Moses, besides our ancient history, also contains our laws by which we are to live. It's accepted that not even one syllable in this holy document is superfluous and without specific meaning. Yet, the ethical command, laws of Ashel Gedi Bachalevi Mo, do not boil the kid in the milk of its mother, is repeated three times in different parts of this holy scroll. Our sages explain that the second time means we shall not eat it, and the third we shall not have any use of it, which means not to gain advantage or reward from combining it. So how should we understand this important command, stated three times without further explanation, when we no longer have goats living outside our tent and the culture of eating has completely changed, yet we know that the Torah is relevant for all times? This is when we once again turn to our sages whose wisdom was beyond ours and to help us to understand what seems to us to be illogical in modern times, particularly because the prohibition and the context are unclear. It is argued that the Torah simply quotes the kid as example, so the sages have extended the prohibition to all kosher domestic animals, that's those who chew the cud and have cloven hoofs. And even if we buy milk and meat in different markets, and it is unlikely to be from the same animal, the prohibition still stands. Among many other interpretations, Rabbi Hirsch explains that meat represents the animal portion of life, the muscle and sinew, and milk represents the reproductive capacity of animal life, the nourishment that supports new life. Animals instinctively eat and reproduce, but man has a higher calling. He must learn to differentiate between his activities, and this is symbolized by the prohibition against milk and meat. Consequently, in modern times, our rabbinical heads have established a system by which the premises of food production and premises of food consumption are supervised by religiously qualified persons and the establishments are being certified as producing or selling dairy or meat products. The largest number of Jewish communities in the world accept their chief rabbinate's certificate. But now we get to a conundrum. There are some, particularly Haredim, the ultra-Orthodox, for whom that is not safe enough, and they want certification by their own rabbi or rebbe to ensure strict adherence. 
As a result, many products already certified by the chief rabbinate also carry the stamp of one or another rabbi from an ultra-Orthodox group. The story does not end here. You would think that certification by an ultra-Orthodox rabbi would now be accepted by every stream of ultra-Orthodoxy. Wrong. Many still don't eat in each other's homes because it is not stamped by the rabbi of their particular sect. It's a sad story that one Torah-observant Jew does not accept the kosher observance of his neighbor because he follows the teaching of a different rabbi. As to the kosher observances of Haredim generally, there is no doubt, but it is deplorable that they engage in a system of one-upmanship, even among themselves. The way my rabbi interprets the law is more accurate than yours. There are at least six ultra-Orthodox rabbinical symbols for certification, some of which are accepted by some Haredi groups or sects, if you prefer that uh, term, while others only trust different symbols carrying the name of other rabbis. The apparent underlying reason for the mistrust is the possibility of fraud or lax supervision. Unfortunately, neither the chief rabbinate nor the government help to achieve understanding. Quite to the contrary, their actions aggravate the situation. The Minister for Religious Affairs, Matan Kahana, intends to introduce reforms of kosher supervision and invited the Sephardi chief rabbi Yitzhak Yosef for consultation. He is a dayan, a judge, an expert on Jewish law and criticized Minister Kahana's proposed reforms and did not agree to the meeting. Enter the Ombudsman of the Israeli Judiciary and former Supreme Court Judge Uri Shocham, who thought it to be his duty to request Minister Kahana to summon and reprimand the chief rabbi and even request his dismissal. The ombudsman seems to be unaware that according to paragraph 19 of the chief rabbinate of Israel law, 1980, the only reason a minister of religious affairs can prevent a chief rabbi from carrying out his duties is if he is declared permanently unfit for health reasons, and that only on the strength of the opinion of three physicians. The chief rabbis, both Ashkenazi and Sephardi, are appointed for a term of ten years. Instead of reasoned argument, we hear statements that are offensive to the office of chief rabbi, just to promote the left's political agenda. This really amounts to politicizing the laws of the Torah. Our scriptures teach us how to disagree without being disagreeable. They remind us that we don't have to say everything we think out loud. Sometimes, out of respect for another person, it may be more appropriate to remain silent. But it also suggests that even while respecting others, we can still turn our heads away from opinions we don't accept. We can both show respect and at the same time discreetly and politely remain true to our own beliefs. Having said all that, which is sad enough, the government has recently withdrawn the monopoly from the chief rabbinate of Israel to supervise kosher certification and sanctioned a new organization to compete. They allow the food establishment to declare their strict adherence to the laws of kosher without, as I understand it, the presence or even occasional visit by a qualified supervisor. Surely, when observing any laws of the Torah, and particularly the laws of kashrut, of kosher, one should not have to compete for accuracy. We don't compete for accuracy in the secular laws of the land. In their home, individuals either keep to the rules or they do not. There cannot be any official supervision. Of course, a manufacturer or dispenser of food has a further responsibility to the public who buy their products. Therefore, in addition to their personal assurances, a method of official rabbinical supervision is essential. 
the strict adherence to the laws by establishments displaying the sign of Zohar, the new organization that relies on the word of the proprietor, so I believe, however honest, is not being accepted as totally reliable by the strictly orthodox. For instance, eggs containing a blood spot are not kosher, therefore all eggs have to be examined in a glass before use. Will the kitchen hand diligently perform this task that should be performed by the rabbinical supervisor? More after the break. Hi, I'm Steve Miller. And I'm Matt Zucker. Join us for Lighten Up, where we take a look at the week's current events in Israel and from around the Jewish world through a humorous lens. If you've been paying attention during these crazy times, you know that it's a challenge to parody life anymore. But join Steve and I as we give it the old college try. Not only is being happy an obligation, but life is just too short to take it all so seriously. So join me, Steve Miller, and me, Matt Zucker, for Lighten Up every Monday morning at 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, 5 p.m. Israel, only on IsraelNewsTalkRadio.com. And now, here is Walter Bingham. Member of Knesset for the Shash Party, Michael Malchieli, referred to the decision of the Ombudsman to summon the chief rabbi to a hearing as a national day of mourning that will be remembered for generations. In his response to the decision of the Ombudsman, United Torah Judaism leader, member of Knesset Moshe Gafni said, Judge Shoham cannot continue in his position after harming the chief rabbi of Israel and trying to prevent him from carrying out his role as prescribed in Jewish law. He said, I support the chief rabbi of Israel who does his job faithfully and protects millions of Jews in Israel and around the world in maintaining kosher and other matters of Jewish law, Gaffney continued. His words underline the fact that the purpose of the chief rabbinate is to protect the Jewish nature of Israel, the Torah, and even diaspora Jewry. On the other hand, in politics, timing can make the difference between winning an argument and losing it. That is the art of diplomacy, which it seems is sadly missing from the repertoire of Moshe Gaffney. At a time when we need to persuade a Victor Lieberman to adopt a more reasonable approach to the lifestyle and demands of the ultra-Orthodox and other Torah-observant Jews, Gaffney acts like a bull in a china shop with his intention to prevent local authorities to run Shabbat public transport services. Of course, one can expect nothing less from United Torah Judaism than their objection to the desecration of the Shabbat, and quite rightly so. But having regard to the composition of the present government, when the right wing needs every vote they can get, it's a faux pas of large proportions to raise a subject that will be interpreted as religious coercion when he said, we will make a law so that mayors and municipal authorities will not be able to do what they want. Religious Affairs Minister Matan Kahana responded to the motion of no confidence submitted against him in the Knesset plenum by the Haredi parties and in a passionate speech edited here, he criticized members from the Shas and United Torah Judaism parties who repeatedly interrupted his remarks about his proposed Kashrut reforms when he said, quote, The truth has been revealed. I understood who you are fighting against, not against the reform movement and not against me. You are fighting against my rabbis and against the study halls where I and my friends grew up and against important Rosh Hashivot and against municipal rabbis in Israel who do not do what you want and therefore you dare to call them reform. For you, there are either reformers or Haredim. 
you're fighting against the right of religious Zionism to self-determination. You want religious Zionism small and submissive. Our rabbis and our public is reformed to you. Knesset member Derry does not believe that it is possible to be orthodox and not Haredi. Stop patronizing religious Zionism. We observe the commandments no less than you. The Torah is dear to us no less than to you. Kahana continued, During my term, religious Zionism will no longer be meek and submissive under your feet, he declared. He also turned to members of the Religious Zionist Party when he asked, Why are you cooperating with them? The Haredi members of Knesset want to erase entire study halls of religious Zionism. Why do you insist on being Derry and Gaffney's errand boys? When they organized a conference for the salvation of Judaism, whom did they not invite? The people with knitted yarmulkes, head coverings. Why didn't they invite you? Because they do not count you. For them, you are not religious enough. Derry and Gaffney hear this well. The days of stepping on us are over. The days of telling us who deserves to be a judge or a rabbi and who is disqualified are over. We are no less strict about the law and we are no less God-fearing and we are not going anywhere, the minister concluded. It is commendable that Minister Matan Kahana is resisting the efforts of the extremist elements to further curtail the religious Zionism constituent of the Jewish state. But on Kahana's proposed conversion reform that would allow local rabbis to perform that important and holy task, the chief rabbi David Lau commented that, quote, it involves a great deception and it will cause the destruction and rupture of the Jewish people and will also affect diaspora Jewry. End of quote. Is it not time now that we abandon these differences and among Jews expand the definition of we and shrink the definition of they? On the observance of our Kashrut kosher laws, there should never be a compromise, but whether it's oversight should be the exclusive domain of the chief rabbinate or also of other supervisory organizations is a matter of ongoing debate. This week, the Archbishop of South Africa, Desmond Tutu, died at age 90. All the Christian world mourned his passing and spoke of him as an inspiration for forgiveness and praised his work in the fight for truth and reconciliation following the apartheid era. As a friend of Nelson Mandela, he was of course very much involved in the struggle against apartheid in his country, and while other activists were imprisoned, his clerical collar helped him to be the lone voice and important player in advocating for change. He even received the Nobel Peace Prize in 1984 for his role in the opposition to apartheid in South Africa. But his attitude to the State of Israel, and even to Jews, was less than conciliatory. Following the fall of the apartheid government, he compared the lifestyle of Palestinian Arabs in Israel as being equal to that of the system against which he fought. In an open letter to members of the United Methodist Church, Tutu endorsed a proposed resolution calling for church divestment from companies that, quote, sustain Israel's occupation. The world has lost a moral judge where the basis of the obituaries. In fact, his Israel stance veered into classical religion-based antisemitism when he spoke of the punishment of the Jews for disobeying God. At the same time, during a visit to Yad Vashem in Jerusalem, the world's foremost Holocaust memorial, he suggested, yes, almost pleaded, 
that the Nazis ought to be forgiven for their crimes against the Jewish people, a gross insult to our six million. In an open letter to Bishop Tutu, Dr. Robert Rosette, a senior historian who, between 1993 and 2018, served as director of the libraries at Yad Vashem, wrote, It is the Jews who paid for the Holocaust with the blood of some six million innocent victims, not the perpetrators, not the bystanders, and not Arabs in Palestine or anywhere else. The well-known lawyer Alan Dershowitz said on Fox News, Can I remind the world that although he did a lot of good things on apartheid, the man was a rampant anti-Semite and bigot. The man minimized the Holocaust. The man compared Israel to Nazi Germany. And in a Newsweek article, Tutu didn't talk about the Israel lobby, he talked about the Jewish lobby. He said that getting killed in gas chambers was an easy death compared to apartheid. Jews claimed a monopoly in the Holocaust, he said. Tutu was the most influential anti-Semite of our time, concluded Dershowitz. My conclusion is that I know one should not speak ill of the dead, so Archbishop Tutu will now have to justify his anti-Jewish activities to God, the guardian of his chosen people. It was at the time unbelievable that Arya Derry, who was Minister of the Interior, could some nine years after his release from serving a three-year prison sentence for taking bribes, regain his former position in government that included being in charge of prisons. Of course, it's accepted that when a person completed the punishment, he is free to resume normal life. But to serve as a role model in ministerial posts should be excluded. The country seems to have a short memory because he was re-elected to lead the Shash party. Fast forward to this year, and member of Knesset Derry was again interrogated. There was suspicion of fraud and other financial offences. Although Attorney General Mandelblit is being seen as a meticulous legalist following his indictment of Prime Minister Netanyahu, who, by the way, has appointed him, Mandelblit seems to have a soft spot for Arya Derry. That is apparent by the opportunity he affords Derry for a plea bargain as well as by the type of charges proposed that would allow this convicted criminal to once again stand for election to Knesset. One thing is certain, as an alleged recidivist of financial fraud, Derry should never again be allowed to hold any post with access to finances. It is therefore beyond belief that he still serves as head of the Shash party. Are you tired of political correctness and the fear that you might offend someone? I'm not afraid to offend you. Wow, look who's talking tough. One has to be tough to keep sane today. Hi, I'm Alan Skorsky. And I'm Bela Seabrow. And join us every Wednesday for The Definitive Wrap as we interview the most sought-after guests and expose progressive trends that masquerade as enlightenment but actually destroy our freedoms. We are the No Wolf Zone, so buckle up for this exciting show. Buckling up, but I'm driving. <laughs> sure, you can drive, but I'm the navigator. Tune in for the No Nonsense, the definitive rap show, every Wednesday on Israel News Talk Radio. Recently, another convicted criminal and former Israeli Prime Minister Ehud Olmert has come out of the shadows in an attempt to self-publicize himself as a credible voice. Although he insists that his next career will be journalism rather than politics, he is not backward in coming forward to support the Blue and White Party leader Benny Gantz. Of course, that is his right in our democracy. 
But if his aim is to again be accepted as a valuable member of the political or journalistic establishment, then he would be advised to choose his words more carefully. To accuse Netanyahu of meeting with murderers and calling him a liar does not endear a convicted criminal to the educated public. He is also underestimating, in fact insulting, the Israeli public by having met with Holocaust denier and terror paymaster Mahmoud Abbas and saying that he fights terror. But what can one expect from Olmert, who during his term as Prime Minister was prepared to give away half the country and our eternal capital city, Jerusalem? The internet lists 33 high Israeli officials from President and Prime Minister as well as present and former ministers and Knesset members to chief rabbis as having had criminal convictions. That is a disgrace for a people that are supposed to be a light unto the nations. I just mentioned Mahmoud Abbas, and it is, in my view, demeaning the office of Israel's defense minister when Benny Gantz showed deference to that Holocaust denier and unapologetic paymaster of terrorists by inviting him to his private home. Whilst Gantz promised a hundred million shekel loan to the Palestinian Authority, which in effect will turn out to be a gift, as well as some obscure legal status for nine and a half thousand so-called Palestinians, I have yet to read or hear of any concrete concessions that the terrorist leader Abbas made. This is another example of how our government is beholden to the support of the Palestinian lobby in order to retain power. When will this giveaway of Israeli goods end? And now two items that resonate in my world. On official correspondence, you would often see the letters MM following my name. They stand for a military decoration, but today I want to discuss quite a different meaning of MM. I shall talk about memory matters, and as you know too well, the memory matters a great deal. In fact, the occasional lapse can drive one to despair. How many times did you wonder what you came to the fridge for, or why you went into the bedroom. Don't worry, there's nothing really wrong with you, even if you are not of advanced age. It's not the onset of senility, nor, God forbid, the disease of Alzheimer's. I can tell you that I am doing it all the time, and as you know, I am certainly far from being senile. It's a matter of concentration on your task at hand and not to allow yourself to be sidetracked by anything you see en route. There's a method of how you can train yourself. It takes a little time, but it works. So in order to learn more about improving my own memory, I consulted Rina Yutkovsky, who is a qualified and highly respected memory coach. And because it is most likely that some of my listeners could benefit from her training, I'm pleased that she has taken time to travel from her home in the country to be at the studio today so that she can introduce you to the initial rudiments of memory training. Welcome to the Walter Bingham file, Rena. Thank you so much for having me today. If it's neither senility nor any other serious disease, why does it happen more than once a day to the extent that I have even left the front door key outside all night. This, this happens to all of us. The short answer is it's a concentration issue. We're really not paying attention to what we're doing. So you left the key in there because you were probably thinking about the next thing you need to do when you get in your house. So your brain skipped ahead and you weren't paying attention to what you were doing. So is there a method to remember or have I just got to put up with it? There's a lot you can do to train your brain and improve your focus. And when you improve your focus, you're going to actually improve your memory because you won't be walking into the room and saying, what did I come here for? Where are my keys? 
Okay, I have to improve my focus. How do I do that? The acronym called TEAS, T-E-A-S, that helps us with these, what we call senior moments. The T stands for one task at a time. This is a problem, Walter, because we're all doing so many things at one time. So we have to stop multitasking and it trips up our brain. So we think we're capable of throwing our keys down and going and making a cup of coffee and then answering the phone all at one time. But we can't actually do that all at one time. We have to do one task at a time so that our brain stays very focused on what we're doing. So example, right, when you leave the key in the lock, if you would be focusing on one task, which is opening your door, taking out the key, and then putting your key where you'll know where it is, if you would have only been doing one task, you wouldn't have tripped up your brain. So that's the T. The E is environment. You want your environment to be conducive to remembering. So oftentimes we have a lot of distractions and noise in the background, and that makes it that we can't focus on what we're doing. Then we say we can't remember, but is it memory? No, it's focus and attention. You say environment. I can't change my environment. I'm not responsible for the background noise. Right, you can't change your environment, but you can turn off your cell phone. Like when you're doing an important email or when you're recording something, you don't answer your phone. You turn off your phone because you can't be distracted. So minimizing distractions to the best of our ability, you don't keep getting up to get the phone if you're in the middle of something important. So it's really putting our focus to what we want to remember. So if it's important enough to remember, then it's important enough to really focus. Also, environment has to do with lighting. When you're trying to write an email or focus on writing something important, if the lighting's not good, you're not going to be able to see what you're doing. If there's too much clutter on your desk, you can't focus on what you're doing. And all that's environment. Avoiding distractions or minimizing disruptions, making sure the lighting's good, making sure our desk is clear enough that we could think straight. All these things help us pay more attention to the task at hand. And then from the T-E-A-S, the A stands for automatically. We tend to do things very automatically where we're not paying attention. Our brain is not engaged in what we're doing. So we blame our memory, but it's really focus and attention. I throw my keys down. I do it automatically without thinking about it. My mind is not engaged in what I'm doing. If my mind's not engaged, am I going to remember that I did it? No, but it's not a memory problem. It's a focus and attention issue. Well, I'm coming home and put my keys down because I know I have something else to do. So where are you putting them? Are you doing it automatically? Yes. So then when you go looking for your keys, they could be anywhere. But if you engage your brain in the action, which means you watch your hand, you listen to the sound, you do it in the same place, right? In Hebrew, we say makom kavua, set place for everything. Then you'll be able to find it. Or if you engage your brain with mental images, our mind thinks in pictures. So a mental image is going to help you find those keys. So when you put those keys down, instead of doing it automatically, you want to do it mindfully by paying attention, by engaging your brain, and by making a strong mental image. So the next time you throw your keys down, imagine a huge bouquet of red roses popping out of those keys. And then in an hour when you say, where are my keys? This image is going to come. It's going to pop into your head, that huge red bouquet of flowers. Or you could have a genie popping out or whatever other imaginative mental image works for you. So you're not doing it automatically. You're engaging your brain. You're mindful. You're paying attention to what you're doing now. And the S stands for senses. This is a great trick. It works every time. Very powerful and very simple. So you are using as many senses as possible to focus and remember. So now you put the keys, your glasses, your phone, whatever you keep losing, when you put it down now, you're gonna watch your hand put it down. You're gonna hear the sound of it hitting the table or the chair, wherever you're putting it. And you're gonna say out loud, I am now putting my keys on the coffee table. Or I have now put my glasses by the sink. Because when you say it out loud, you have a much better chance of remembering it later. The statistic is, that your senses stimulate your brain. So when you use one sense to remember something, you have about a 10% chance of remembering it a week later. But if you engage four senses, you have a 97% chance of remembering it. All you have to do is engage the senses. So you're looking, you're hearing. If it's taste, if it's something like taking your medicine and you taste the medicine, you're engaging all those senses, 
your whole body is now in that task, right? You're smelling, you're tasting, you're hearing. You're so I'll give one more example that happens a lot to people, which is they forget if they turned off the stove. And this causes a lot of anxiety, especially when you get older. You can get very anxious about that. So now you actually watch your hand turn the stove. You watch the flame go off. You smell the food, right? The food is cooking, so you're smelling it. And then you actually move the pot. When you move the pot, you're doing a kinesthetic action. And that action you're going to remember later. Moving the pot is something you're going to remember. I hear what you say, but these are very complicated tasks to do all day long. Are you also suggesting that I talk to myself all day and to think and to watch my hand? That's a task in itself. Yes. So yes, you should be talking to yourself. And then imagine a couple in a room talking to themselves. What confusion that would cause. Gone are the days where we think you're crazy for talking to yourself. In today's day and age, everyone's walking down the street with a Bluetooth in their ear. So everyone's talking to themselves. So don't worry about talking to yourself. It's a good thing. And it's not complicated. What you're doing is you're giving it a couple seconds of attention. I'll give one more example that happens a lot to people, which is they forget if they turned off the stove. And this causes a lot of anxiety, especially when you get older. Whether you turned off the stove or not, you can get very anxious about that. So now you actually watch your hand turn the stove. You watch the flame go off. You smell the food, right? The food is cooking, so you're smelling it. And then you actually move the pot. When you move the pot, you're doing a kinesthetic action. And that action you're going to remember later. Moving the pot is something you're going to remember. I hear what you say, but these are very complicated tasks to do all day long. Are you also suggesting that I talk to myself all day and to think and to watch my hand? That's a task in itself. Yes. So yes, you should be talking to yourself. And then imagine a couple in a room talking to themselves. What confusion that would cause. Gone are the days where we think you're crazy for talking to yourself. In today's day and age, everyone's walking down the street with a Bluetooth in their ear. So everyone's talking to themselves. So don't worry about talking to yourself. It's a good thing. And it's not complicated. What you're doing is you're giving it a couple seconds of attention. Do it. You get used to turning off the stove. And instead of your mind being elsewhere, now your mind is focused on what you're doing. So you're watching your hand. You're watching the fire go out. You're moving the pot. You're smelling the food. It takes a couple seconds. And you're giving it attention. And you're making the intention to remember it. That's, it's so simple. It takes a couple seconds. How long does it take? to get into such a routine? It's really a habit. So just like you brush your teeth, it takes time to brush your teeth. It takes time to lock your door. So you're doing the same thing. Now you're paying attention to it. It's basically not allowing your mind to wander somewhere else so that when you want to recall what you did, you'll be able to because your mind is not elsewhere. I always say, so I sort of have to bring my body and my brain to the same spot. So you're doing the same task. You're locking your door. But now you're using your senses to encode the memory properly so you can recall it when you want. This is a basic method to begin with. Is there any more that I can learn? And if so, what other service do you give? Sometimes I do one-on-one -on -one coaching. So you, people come to me and say, here are my problems. What solutions do you have? And I can do one-on-one -on -one coaching. I teach courses. I also do online all the techniques for names, numbers, and lists of items. There's one more message that I think is important. People think you just have to suffer with it. There's so much you can learn. And there's a lot of lifestyle factors that we can help our brain work better. So diet, exercise, socialization. A lot of times we're not confident in what we, we believe we can't remember because we're old. But actually, you don't have a bad memory. It's trained or untrained, and you can train it to work for you. There's so much we can do to help prevent dementia, and the research is new on that. Your method is also new on all of us, I'm sure. I will certainly try it. Whether I can stick with it, only time will tell. So if people would like to learn more about training their memory, how do they get in touch with you? So my email is rena, R-E-N-A, at renayudkowski.com, R-E-N-A-Y-U-D-K-O-W-S-K-Y.com. Can you also be reached by phone? 
anyone about their memory concerns, it's 058-323-2273. And please don't forget to mention that you heard it on this program. Rina Yudkovsky, thank you for coming all the way here to speak to us, and I very much appreciate your time. Thank you, Walters. A pleasure. The next item makes me proud of our Jewish youth. Welcome to the studio, Private Easy Lions. It's strange to ask about your early life when you're just 19 years old, but I know that you've had quite an interesting time. Tell me about that. I grew up in Hong Kong, in a small Jewish community and in a small Jewish day school. And at 17, I made Aliyah. You were born in Hong Kong? No, I was born in New York and I moved as a baby to Hong Kong. Besides Israel, you've been to other places. I'd like to hear about your early life. Um, throughout my childhood, I spent every other summer in Israel and every other summer in the States visiting family. And other than that, we traveled a bit around Southeast Asia in order to explore the cultures that we were living in. Anywhere else you've been? Where else you traveled to? I traveled a lot around Asia, a little bit around America. Did you travel on your own? With my family. So in Hong Kong, you were part of a group of girls, in fact, a triathlon team, and that was an unbreakable relationship. So what made you decide to leave that and come to Israel to change your bicycle helmet for a military one? and where you would have to start all over again. I believe in standing up for what you believe in, and I think that it was important for me to take the physical skills that I'd gained as a triathlete in doing it in elite training, and take it in return for combat training and contributing to my country and defending my people. Did you always want to enlist as a combat soldier, and if so, why? I've been saying I did it since I was little because I believe that girls can do anything that boys can do. And I also believe that the Jewish homeland is something that we all need to protect and defend. Were you aware of the strenuous training regime, which I imagine is the same as for boys? So my training was exactly the same as the boys' training. Uh, it's considered 07 level, which is the same for any, co- any other combat unit in the army. And... I knew what I was getting into, and I enjoyed the challenge. Was the training easier for you because you were a triathlon athlete than it would be for someone who comes from normal life? I definitely had an advantage in terms of running and other basics, but most of combat training is a different kind of fitness, which is a combat fitness, and we were all learning those skills from the start together. Now tell me what it was like during your final fields test, before being given your badges and your berry as a fully-fledged soldier. That must have been exciting. Yes, that was very exciting. Um, It was a 35-kilometer march. With the last five kilometers or or so, we were with stretchers. What does it mean, you're with stretchers? So for the last five or so kilometers of every march, you take stretchers out and you put on around 80 kilograms of weights and you run with them and it's a last show of strength. And the idea is that you take out the hardest bit, the last part to show your final surges of strength. And for the last kilometer of this march, all the families come in and run next to us until we get to the end. That must have been a wonderful moment. Is that for every combat soldier or for particular units? Every combat soldier of a certain level of combat training does the same march at the end of their eight months of training. So how did you stand up to it? What was it like during the march? I think it was a super powerful experience because the whole way you're with people that you've gone through the eight hardest months of your lives with and you feel this, you feel it together in it. You feel a finality, like you're ready to start your job. It marks the end where you're officially qualified to do the job you've been training for for so long. And in the last few minutes when your parents run in, for me this was particularly powerful because my father, seeing that proud of me as a combat soldier, was a very emotional experience. 
Oh, I can fully understand how you felt. Now, we're talking about your final march, and in fact, the whole training. As I understand it, it's very difficult. What percentage of people actually pass, and how does it work? We started with about 200 or so guys and 90 or so girls. Half of the girls would be sent to the Syrian border, and half the girls would be sent to the Egypt border based on scores and other various factors. And we ended with around 20 girls for the Syrian border and 20 girls for the Egyptian border. That means that more than half did not make it into this combat unit. 50 either dropped out um, or were kicked out at certain points in training. But they would stay in the army. They would stay in the army, but most of them would either transfer to a less physical combat unit or into a non-combat unit. And what about the boys? You had 200, you said. I would say around 150 or so finished training. Oh, they did better in proportion than the girls? They did slightly better, but they were also sent four between Syria, Lebanon, Gaza, and the West Bank. So the training actually took place in border areas? No, all our training took place on a base in the Negev, and then towards the end we were separated to our final spots. Beside the strenuous physical training, I suppose there are also written tests. Yes, so there are many written tests throughout the training because we are also an intelligence unit. That was actually one of my main challenges as a Ola Kharasha, as someone who just moved to the country because Hebrew was a struggle for me at the beginning. But they were very accommodating and usually gave me about an extra 10 minutes or so to complete the test so that I could read and take my time. How did you get on with the tests? I suppose the test is, uh, let's say, a score for one to five. Yeah, so it's usually just, um, it depends how many, the amount of questions you get right. But I think I did like 90% and above on all the tests. That's wonderful. What would you say to the argument that women should not go into combat units, firstly, because of the danger of battle, and secondly, because the sexes are mixed and that would detract from the concentration of the task? I strongly disagree because I think that firstly, women can do anything men can do. And secondly, I think that building a society where men and women are completely equal, especially in terms of military, builds a stronger future for Israel in which men and women are thought of as equal after the army. I think that maybe even if it does take a little while longer to get to the task during training and to get to the point where we're considered completely equal, I think it's worth it in the long term. But what about the question of mixed sexes in the unit? I don't think it affects our concentration at all. In fact, I think the women that enter combat know exactly what they're getting into and are volunteering for this, so we know the possible dangers. And I also think that in terms of the men that are drafting with us, I think that maybe they're thrown off for the first few minutes of training. As soon as we start, you know, crawling in the field or doing real training, they get used to us. It actually builds for further concentration and a more meaningful experience. Of course, I know that we now have female tank units, for instance. But as an old frontline soldier, I understand the risks of being taken prisoner if you go into battle. God forbid for Israeli girls to fall into the hands of our enemies, who are known not to stick to the Geneva Convention. In fact, they've been known to behave like savages. Have you given that some thought? Doesn't it frighten you? Of course, it's a frightening thought, but I believe that I came here willingly. I know the risks, and I'm here to defend my country. So I believe that, first of all, I'm in one of the best defended armies in the world where we look out for each other nonstop. And second of all, I think it's important that that, uh, women and men do the same sorts of fighting. Do you have any ambitions of rising to officer rank or even making the army your career? Maybe. It's not out of the question yet, but I also have a lot of other things I want to do with my life, so I'm not sure yet. Is that a secret or can we hear what your plans are? Might be a far-off dream, but I do want to return to the world of sports and possibly spend the year after the army training for the Olympics. 
You are a lone soldier. That means that you don't have a home to go to when you're on leave. What is it like, particularly on Shabbat? How do you get on? Um, so I recently actually just moved to a new house. It's called Bait Shabenji, and it's a building for combat soldiers. And the idea is the combat soldiers living together, around 87 of us, give each other the community. And on Shabbats especially, it's very nice because we have a Shabbat dinner, all the soldiers together. We talk about our weeks, we all talk about our challenges, and we all understand each other. And we sort of make a family for ourselves. You're in a field intelligence unit. Can you explain in broad brushstrokes what that actually means? We collect intelligence, a lot of different technologies in order to assist the military. And recently I've been doing a lot more in a new drones unit, which is an experimental drones unit. A unit where they just started adding girls. We're considered the highest level of combat for girls, as well as an intelligence unit. Can I ask where you are serving? I'm serving primarily on the Syrian border. Oh, that's a dangerous place. Have you encountered any problems? Our job is to find solutions to problems. So you have some possible plans in sport, maybe representing Israel? I mean, that's one of my dreams, yeah. Triathlon. Can you explain that? And at which of the three branches of triathlon are you best? So a triathlon is a race where you do a swim, a bike and a run. A swim, a bike ride and then a run? My dream is to one day do an Ironman, which is a 4km swim, 180km bike and a 42km run. I'm most passionate about the swim section, and which is what I want to do in the Olympics. That would be wonderful. Anyway, I wish you luck in all your plans. They should all materialize and most of all, keep healthy and of course safe during your army service, wherever that takes you. Thank you so much for spending some of your valuable free hours with my microphone. Thank you so much for having me. Finally, some good news. President Isaac Herzog and his wife Michal hosted about 50 girls and members of the Victims of Terror Organization at a festive event at the President's residence. Also present were Welfare and Social Security Minister Mayor Cohen, Chairman of the Association of Victims of Terror, Ivy Moses, and Director General of the National Insurance Institute, Mayor Spiegel. These bar and bar mitzvah celebrations have been held by the Association of Victims of Terror for Children for the last 19 years. And so I come to the end. Until the next time, this is Walter Bingham, hoping that my Christian listeners will have had a meaningful holiday and that all your New Year celebrations brought you into a happy 2022. To all my Jewish listeners, I wish a successful and good week. By the way, according to the Hebrew calendar, last Shabbat I celebrated my 98th birthday. In the secular calendar, it's the 5th of January, when I shall enter my 99th year of life. If you love Israel News Talk Radio, then you'll love our Facebook page. We keep you up to date on what's happening in Israel plus little surprise treasures that we don't share on the radio. Go now to follow us on Facebook. Just look for the Israel News Talk Radio Facebook page. And don't forget to subscribe and follow us by clicking on the like button. We post great stuff there that you'll want to share. Israel News Talk Radio on Facebook and Israel News Radio on Twitter. If you're hearing this message, everyone else can too. Advertise with Israel News Talk Radio and get your message out to people. We'll build a personalized package for you. Contact advertising at IsraelNewsTalkRadio.com. Straight talk from Israel. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. Hey, this is Jake in Anchorage, Alaska, and I love listening to all the super interesting interviews and up-to-date information on what's happening in Israel. Hello, this is Anna King, originally from London, now living in Israel. 
And what can I say? Israel News Talk Radio is my cup of tea. My name is Bhaskar. I'm from India. And I love listening because you get to know the truth and wonderful voices from this lovely country. Mom! Okay, wait a minute. Hi, this is Chava Dax, and I'm calling for the rolling hills of Malaya Dumim, just north of Jerusalem. I always listen to Israel News Talk Radio to get all the latest news and commentary and to keep me up to date every day. This is Sarah Dax from Malaya Dumim, and I'm 12. I wish Israel News Talk Radio was boring so my mom wouldn't listen to it all the time. Mom! You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio. News, opinion, and more. You're listening to Israel News Talk Radio.